Welcome to Your Religiosity. This is Podcast 6. This podcast I'm really excited about because we're going to talk about uh, kind of the Bible, creationist, intelligent design, evolution, uh, the whole big fight, the whole creation-evolution controversy. Yeah, now a little forewarning. Uh, we were discussing this, and originally we were just going to do one podcast about this, but there's just such a wide range of issues and topics to be discussed that we've actually decided to do a two-parter on this until we actually, uh, in the fourth week, do our interview with some other people. And we got some people lined up for that fourth week, right? Uh, as of now, yes, but I don't want to specify them until I have their information. You don't want to spoil it. No spoilers. It's a mystery, but it's going to be really exciting. If you say so. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, right. Interestingly enough, I guess we ought to do a little background. I mean, I know you and I were both raised in families that thought evolution was absolutely irrefutably wrong. In fact, uh, both of our parents still believe in that fact. Um, yeah, despite my best efforts to uh, explain evolutionary theory to them, they, they, they still don't uh, buy it. Yeah, well I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that this is something that's been ingrained to them since their youth. I mean, even with my youth growing up, I remember my dad's greatest story was the fact that as he was a seminary teacher, now mind you... This isn't Catholic seminary where it's actual... Like, uh, you have to go through postgraduate. postgraduate, learn. This you study, is... like, ancient history and languages and all that stuff. This is like, he's teaching... Mormon doctrine. So yeah. basically, it's, if you've served a mission, you can be a seminary teacher. So I had, interestingly enough, he, your dad wasn't the teacher when I was there. It was, um, it was another guy. I had uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and... Church history, I think, were the three that I took. So I missed out on the Book of Mormon. You're supposed to go for four years, one for each um, yeah. uh, grade in high school. What uh, what three years did you take? The high take school. Three? Yeah, just the high school. Uh, the last three years of high school. Basically, remember what the subjects were? <laughs> there I were was, only four. I was asleep for most <laughs> of them. You don't remember anything. Or I was sloughing. I remember they did something about the Book of Mormon, and then they, I think they tried the the Old Testament, but... Yeah, I didn't even bother with that. That's awesome. Time. So you slept through seminary just like you slept through church. Yeah. Yep. Wasn't any more interesting to you? Um, the greatest interest I ever found in seminary was when me and the seminary teacher, who was somewhat of a jock, had a chug-a-lug contest with 7-Up, and it was burning so bad neither of us could finish the 7-Up. That's the most interesting. Oh, and I did forget that uh, they were talking about uh, David and Goliath, and one of them brought in a sling filled with uh, marshmallows, and that woke me up for all the ten minutes to fling around the marshmallow, and then I went right back to sleep. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got a great education at a seminary, as can be seen. So your dad's a seminary teacher. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he actually takes great pride in this. In fact, uh, he likes to point it out at several occasions, but... I'd like to point out that I was scripture champion my junior year. Yeah, I, I could have done that if I was awake. <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, I, you just brought up another fact. Um, my uh, seminary teacher, how they grade you in, in Mormon seminary, is he used to sit me down at the end of each uh, quarter, semester, however they do it, I can't remember. He used to sit me down and say, well, I noticed you were missing quite a few days here, um, do you feel you got a good education out of seminary? And I would constantly say, yeah. And he'd say, okay. And he'd give me a passing grade. Wow. That was the grading structure of my seminary courses. I don't know, how were they with you? I think if you just showed up and pay attention, there, you, uh, there was a wall where you had to mark off all the scriptures that you'd read, and I never did that because I thought it was pretty stupid. Yeah. And I still got, I think I still got A's out of the seminary. I yeah. think if you just showed up and paid attention, uh, there wasn't any homework or anything like that. Uh, not necessarily paid attention, considering <laughs> I would sleep through every single one. But anyway, so if you show up, you get a pass. If you, if you show up and you actually talk to the teacher at the end of the quarter, you'll pass. Perfect. But uh, So anyway, so my dad takes great pride in the fact that he was a seminary teacher. And uh, interestingly enough... He, was, he loved to tell us about one experience he had with a biology teacher where he actually walked in and asked the biology teacher, why do you teach evolution when you know it's wrong? 
And this biology teacher turned around, looked at him, and said, I teach it because they forced me to, otherwise I wouldn't be able to continue with my job here. Now, interestingly enough, Charlie and I have had an, a, a discussion about this, and I love Charlie's take on this. So what is your take? What is my take? I can't remember. Wow. Why do I even have you on? It was so long ago. So long ago, my ass. <laughs> His take on it was probably this biology teacher was just pushing my dad off because he gets these types of questions so much that he was probably just throwing out uh, already generated answers so he wouldn't have to go into great detail about, well, you know, evolution is correct, but theologically oh, that's right. incorrect. That's right. That's such a difficult discussion to have. If you have someone who you know, like your dad, is very deeply religious, yes. you have two options. You can agree with them and end the conversation, which is always the easiest option, or you can um, disagree with them, and then you have to trot out all these arguments, right? And you yeah. almost have to give them a, a mini education in biology because none of the objects are self-evident. None, the, none of these evidences for evolution um, are easy to explain. I mean, we'll, we'll go into them. Shared pseudogenes, retroposons, um, geographical distrib distribution of species. You've got a nested hierarchy of species. Um, lots and lots of evidence for it, but none of it's really easy to explain, especially if someone hasn't had a, a background in it. But your dad graduated in zoology, right? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, well, interestingly enough, the reason why he chose a zoology degree... This is from BYU, so BYU, I'm not sure if that counts, yeah. but... Probably not going to put too much on, on their academic level, but uh, but uh, he graduated in zoology because he just married my mother, and he walked into his counselor and said, you know what, now that I'm a married man, I need to finally sit down and decide what I want to do instead of bouncing around to all these other uh, classes just because I'm interested in them. So his counselor took a look and said, well, you know what, if you take a couple more classes, you can get a zoology degree, and hence... He has a degree in zoology. It is frankly amazing to me, and I don't know if it's the education at BYU in the 70s, 70s, 60s? Sure. Whether it was the education at BYU or whether it was your dad um, or a combination of the two, but how you could spend two to four years getting a biology degree, and zoology is a biology degree, yeah. getting a biology degree and not accept the evidence for evolution is beyond me. Anytime after about the 1930s when uh, genetics was brought into the picture, it's just been irrefutable. I uh, just did the math in my head. He would have been going through school in the 60s. 60s. Uh, I'm sure he was doing a lot of pot at the time. Yeah, well, I'm sure over at BYU, he's, he may have rebelled and drank a, a Coke with caffeine in it. Whoa, Maybe. now you're going a little too far there. Well, anyway, Charlie brought up something that is absolutely true. What did I bring up? I can't remember. You know what, that, that seems to happen to you a lot. Uh, so much for your head in the game, huh? <laughs> well, no, no, he brought up that when it comes to evolution, it's a lot easier to just agree with somebody and send them on their way than it is to actually sit them down and say, okay, well, have you considered this concerning evolution? Do you know about this sort of proof? And I mean, point in fact... My dad, when uh, right at the point when I was on the cusp, when I was going atheist, which uh, I like to say is much like going skinny dipping, you're just going to do something. That, that would make a good name for a novel, I think. Uh, going atheist? I, I'm going atheist. <laughs> <laughs> it's like going Dutch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going Dutch without God. I'm going atheist. <laughs> well, anyway, right when I was on the cusp of it, and I had all my questions about religion in my head bouncing around, um, my dad was sitting outside. If you go Dutch with God, you're going to end up paying the whole bill anyway. Yeah, pretty much. I once told one of Cammy's bishops when we, <laughs> when we were going around and I was asking the whole thing, you know, they brought up tithing and I said, listen, if, if I can make out the check directly to Jesus Christ <laughs> and have him take it and deposit in the bank, I'll pay you the 10%. If it pay to God and, and God actually takes the check and deposits it, I'll pay you 10%. You're saying divinely pulled out of your checking account? Exactly. <laughs> I don't want this middleman stuff, you know, them spending my money. I want to give my money directly to God. All right, anyway, go ahead. Well, you completely made... Okay, hold on, let me get... <laughs> I have no idea where that topic of conversation even came from. <laughs> Interesting nevertheless, but... Uh... Uh, oh, wait, wait, all right. So anyway... <laughs> 
So at the point of uh, going Dutch or going atheist, nice, but uh, I was standing out and uh, I was doing some yard work with my dad, and he starts talking about how amazing the world around us is. I, of course, agreed with him because I do find nature and the universe absolutely fascinating. And he says to me that evolution is wrong, this regular excuse I always get, and uh, tells me about this small bacteria that has a tail that whips and that the mechanism inside the tail that uh, spins and actually creates that whipping of the tail cannot be explained by evolution because it cannot be reduced to a previous component. Well, of course, he's sitting there telling me this and uh, last time I got into a theological discussion with my father, he screamed at me that he knows a hell of a lot more than I do and that I'm just arrogant. Which and is always conducive for further discussion. Yes, yes. It really made me want to go back and continually discuss my <laughs> budding doubts in religion. Well, anyway, so knowing that, I went, did a little bit of research myself, and uh, Charlie helped me uh, to turn me onto the flagellum, which is actually able, well, that's what he was talking about, but it's actually able to be brought back to the bacteria that has kind of a needle for injecting what have you, uh, poisons, that sort of thing, into the cell. It has that, and it's the same type of mechanism with just a slight little tweak that turns it into a whipping tail. Yeah, it's a type 3 secretory system. But you know, these people who argue against evolution, they'll read just far enough to, to understand the argument, and then they'll stop. It never occurs to them, for whatever reason, never occurs to them to say, now... 99% of biologists plus accept the evidence for evolution. Do you think they're all, they all just don't know about the flagellum? Do you think that has ever occurred to them before? And then to seek out possible explanations for it. it just, they just get up to that point and whoosh, that's it. Oh, I agree. I agree with you entirely. In fact, this is why I take what my dad says with a grain of salt. It's because I seriously doubt, and I've seen evidence of it, in that same conversation, that he does not research what is said to them. Basically, he accepts it on face value. And what I mean by the same conversation is, not only in the same conversation was he telling me evolution was false, but he brought up this uh, concept of dinosaur footprints and human footprints within the same rock strata. And, of course, I took a look into that and found out that that was refuted years ago as natural erosion or basic falsification. However, my dad accepted that because it completed his religious views. Sure. They know something's true, and so if something agrees with it, then they don't have to go any farther, right? I'm always skeptical. Even if something agrees with my previous ideas... I'm always a little skeptical that someone's taking advantage or, or lying or just flat out making something up, right? Yeah. So you got to always kind of double-check your sources or else you look like an idiot the next time you talk to someone. Yeah. I think what builds my skepticism isn't really the fact that, I, well, I am distrustful by nature. Yes, yeah, me that's, too. But uh, I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that I love finding out how things work. Yeah. And so when someone tells me something, even if it agrees with what I already think... I have to go and figure it out for myself so I can see the pattern and follow it through to its conclusion, which is where I get the basis for my doubting sort of nature. Yeah, my, uh, my dad actually, you know, I learned about evolution, I think, in the third grade. And my dad went to the teacher, because I, I think I asked some question like, so what you're saying is if we spent a long time in a swimming pool like we'd grow fins or gills or something like that. And the yeah. teacher said, well, yeah, it would take a really long time, but I guess maybe so. And my dad was furious about that. And he went back and uh, yelled at the teacher for teaching me this crap and blah, blah, blah. And I, I thought, you know, well, that's kind of a neat idea. That's, that's really kind of neat. And in high school, I learned about it again, and it sounded, wow, it's, this is totally plausible. Um, I talked to my dad about it, and he said, well, you understand that that, flies in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. You know, the second law of thermodynamics says everything, if left alone, uh, gets more and more disordered over time. So how do you suddenly build a, a complexity, right? Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until much later that I found out that this, this argument is this classic creationist 
argument against evolution has been refuted decades ago. And see, that's what it comes down to, is actually stepping outside your bounds of beliefs and doing research into what you are actually practicing. And I think that's a, that's a big problem with religion, is most people stand up there and they accept what is said to them. Like, you have no idea how many different times in my religious history that I've actually heard somebody stand up at the pulpit and say that Darwin didn't even believe in evolution himself. Right. And then they would read that passage about how he's talking about the complexity of the eye and uh, how it is completely impossible to have been done. He said, I, I freely admit that it seems absurd in the highest degree or something like that. Yeah. Whereas you find out that if you actually do a little research, you read down just a little bit further, and he says, however, let me show you how it's done. So it's not a matter of Darwin not believing in it. He was using that to guide people to his way of thinking, to guide them towards the conclusions that he has come up with and it's to a, show them a way. It's a rhetorical device. He set up the problem so that, um, look, I understand this is a really difficult problem. Here's the problem itself. Uh, it seems crazy, uh, but I'm going to solve it for you, right? And a lot of biologists and paleontologists and scientists have been irritated at creationists because they're really good at looking for scientists who seem to uh, disagree with evolution. So even the slightest sort of disagreeing quote, they'll launch on and they'll grab it and they'll just give you that quote. Or sometimes they'll string two quotes together and put the ellipsis in the middle. Yeah, to make it seem you like always it. have to check creationists on this. Read before, read after, and read in between because I, I almost guarantee you that it doesn't say what they think it says. Yeah, well, I mean, it all comes down to the fact that if it agrees with their belief system, then therefore it must be true, and there is no doubting, which, of course, is completely against scientific experimentation and scientific thinking. And I wonder, the people who do this, you know, I assume that they read Darwin um, in order to find the quote in the first place. If you've read that quote, it's like the very next sentence, or yeah. maybe two sentences down. Yeah, he where goes he right into it. It's it. like the very next paragraph. Uh, and he describes um, how you know you start with a photosensitive spot and then a small invagination, and it gives you directionality of the light, so you can maybe evade precursor or predators because of the shadow. And that invagination becomes a cup, like a pinhole camera. And then you have a lens, um, and so and he gives like different animals who have all of these things. Uh, and so he kind of morphologically kind of describes it as possible, even given the organisms we have today, to say nothing of organisms in the past. Yeah. Uh, but uh, these people have had to have read this, and so if they take this one quote uh, to mislead you, that's dishonest. But didn't Jesus say, or oh, isn't that one of the Ten Commandments, not to lie? Yeah. Well, see, I mean, it all. It. This is something that really irritates me about. Aren't these uh, people supposed creatures? to be? more ethical and more moral than atheists? Exactly, exactly. However, in their mind, I think that they kind of justify that by saying, by my taking this, I will actually further someone's spiritual development by tweaking it just a little bit. That's interesting. So God is a utilitarian. The ends yeah. justify the means, and if the outcome is better, it's okay to lie. So in other words... Thou shalt not lie unless souls are converted or something like that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, something like that. And interesting enough, in the Book of Mormon, God is definitely utilitarian. Yeah. Because he um, tells Nephi to kill Laban yep. to get the brass plates that have the scriptures on them. Far better for one man to die than a nation to dwindle in unbelief. Yeah. Yeah. God lays out his utilitarian reasoning See, right there. I tell you, sleeping through seminary can sometimes bleed through. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, this lying for Jesus has always disturbed me. Yeah, it, it's always kind of bothered me because it makes me think that if you have to lie for Jesus, to, do you deep down believe in Jesus? Do you believe in the religion in and of itself if you're forced to actually form this lie to further someone's spiritual development? Why wouldn't it be able to put out all the information to somebody and let them make the decision on their own and by seeing all of the information and should not spiritual development be based on truth and all information put out there instead of hiding those things or misinterpreting those things that might make somebody consider a different path. Yeah, it makes me think that their argument is really so weak 
that it cannot bear the light of truth. You want to, uh, let's kind of... Well, I think we should start with Genesis here. All right. Let, let's begin with Genesis. We'll, we'll hit the creationist theory first after uh, bringing up Genesis, and then we'll move on from there. All right, so this big, you know, Darwin knew that when he uh, published this idea, it, w it really flew in the face of a literal interpretation of the Bible. Yeah. He actually gathered data and, and wrote for about 20 years, and the thing that spurred him on was um, a, a scientist um, came up with the idea of natural selection independently of Darwin. And he knew Darwin was a, was a, a good scientist, a strong biologist. And actually so he, sent it to him. He sent the letter to him, and, and that kind of said, oh, God, i, I got to get this out immediately. So they kind of jointly presented a paper, and then a year later, Darwin, uh, in 1859, I think, uh, published On the Origin of Species. Yeah. Uh, so he knew, the only reason I think that, that he withheld that is because of religion. Oh, I agree with you. In and fact, it created a huge, huge um, Can you imagine him coming out in that type of religious society, coming out with something that was contrary to the literal translation of the Bible? I mean, today, in today's standards... There's still a little bit of freedom going, oh, you're just, you're, you're just you know, going against what you believe deep down is true. Yeah, today but, they're a little more willing to kind of grant you leeway, leeway. as far as uh, interpretation is concerned. Yeah, back then, though, can you imagine him coming out with this? So I have no doubt in my mind that he had to really sit and contemplate the consequences of what he was actually going to put out and how much tribulation he was going to get because of it. So we decided to um, look up Genesis 1 to see what the big hubbub was about. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here it is, you know, um, on the first day, it says that earth was without form and void and, and, and darkness upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. He uh, created light and he divided the light from the darkness uh, and and that was the first day. So the first day, I yeah. guess everything was water on the first day. Well, obviously, he hadn't raised the lands yet to allow life. Yeah, and that's the second day. He creates the firmament in the midst of the waters and, and then divides it from the, the waters and the waters. God made the firmament, blah, 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 and that was the second day. And then on the third day... So wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that God created the universe around the earth, created the earth filled with water, created light, and... That was all done in one day, and then he created the land on the earth, and that took him a whole day? Wait, we're not actually up to the land. We're just at the firmament. In the, oh, in the, the old, firmament. Okay. The old idea, their old cosmology, I guess, or biblical cosmology, was that the firmament was above oh, the earth. Oh, so we're right? talking the actual heavens. Yeah, okay. right? Uh, and interestingly enough, when you read about the flood, he says he opened up the firmament and allowed all those waters to come back down. Yeah, which is, interestingly enough, if you ever want to wonder, where did all that water come from and where did it go? It was above the firmament. Of course. And so then on, on the third day, he created uh, the dry land and called it earth. Um, and then uh, then you have the grass and the plants, and that's the third day. So on the fourth day, he created, <laughs> he created lights in the firmament, right? So the sun, the stars, the moon... Um, it's interesting how you get plants before sunlight, since they use photosynthesis to create their energy. Well, you know, I figure it's much like Moses and uh, the rainbow. Before Moses, there was no rainbow, so before he actually created sunlight, the plants didn't need that. They could grow uh, right. uh, autonomously. I guess they had, they were anaerobic. Or, of course. I don't know what yeah, it was. Anyway, yeah. uh, uh, that was, was that the fourth day? And then on the fifth day, here we go. He creates a bunch of animals, so fowl, uh, great whales. They told them to be fruitful and multiply, and that was the fifth day. God was instigating sex, and then yes, commanding it. And on the sixth day, he, I think he made some cattle and all the other stuff. And then uh, he said, "Let us make man in our image," which is interesting because who is he talking to? He's just God, right? Yeah, is obviously he talking, he's, well, he's just a split personality. Himself. He's a Trinity. Maybe he's talking to Jesus and the Holy Ghost. You know, that may be a way to describe the Trinity: is he's got a split personality? He's, yeah, <laughs> or he's hearing voices. He's schizophrenic. Uh, so God created man in His own image, uh, male and female created He them. So that was. Um, then He told them to have sex, and that was. Uh, or gives them dominion over everything, and that was the sixth day. So now we're up to Genesis 2. So, so far, we can have a literal interpretation of the Bible, right? So far, so good. 
not so much. I, every time I hear about that, the reason why I brought up that it seems he's going from very complex and it takes him a full day to create something like that, and then he starts moving down to simpler things. Do you really think creating a bunch of animals is as difficult as creating the entire firmament? He took an entire day to create all the animals of the ocean, the fowl. Well, these animals, you got to design them too. You know, this oh, of like course. He's at the draft board. The firmament's just a bunch of water, man. He can create that. Wait, wait, wait. We already about... decided the firmament was up above oh, the sorry. world. So that's, that's like right. the, so, the it, galaxy. It holds the water up away. So we're from talking there. millions upon <laughs> billions of stars and planets out there. and sorry, That is kind of complicated work. Yeah, that's kind of complicated work. And then that takes him a full day, and then all of a sudden just designing these little things. What, did he just keep throwing them in the trash? It seems you know, to me uh, that if you're all powerful, it doesn't matter. You can create. Why couldn't he just create everything at once? Why does it take days? Why does he take. Why does God need a nap on the seventh day that's a good know. question i mean he's all powerful but yet he gets tuckered out he gets tuckered out <laughs> and he needs a rest so judging by that sta- statement i mean god's supposed to be in everything so why is it that god commanded everybody to take rest on the seventh day when from here on out if god is to rest every seven days does that mean the world is running without God on every seventh day? Or is God refusing his own commandment and continuing to work every day like he's supposed to to keep in charge of us? Well, um, he just had to rest that one seventh day because he's all, he's tired. He was just tuckered out after creating Yeah, everything. that's a lot of work. Yeah, paying attention to every single one of us, praying to him. Isn't Keeping all the protons work? together. All that, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so we're, so far it's not, it's at least... Not self-contradictory. So far, if you want to throw away a bunch of science, you can, in, you know, literally interpret it. Yeah. However, we, we come to a problem in Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 2.5, um, so this is after God rested on the seventh day. It says, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, for Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. So I guess we, we rewound time. And uh, there's not a man. And, and now um, this this mist goes up upon the earth and, and kind of uh, waters the whole face of the ground. And God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed uh, into his nostrils a breath of life. And then he planted a garden to be eaten uh, and made uh, Eve out of his rib. And then, um, interesting, and tells him not to eat out of the tree of life. And then he starts making animals. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. This is Genesis 2.19. Every fowl of the air and brought them into Adam to see what he would call them. Well, first of all, doesn't God already know what he would call <laughs> Isn't he omniscient? Obviously. Um, but second of all, so in Genesis 1, you have all the animals first and then God. In Genesis 2, you have man, man first, first and then, and then, then all, all the animals. animals. Well, another question I Did have. I say animal, animals first and then man? Yeah. I think you said animals first and then And then God. God. God didn't create himself. Yeah. Genesis 1, animals first and then man. Genesis 2, man first and then all the animals. Which, in Genesis 2, it doesn't make much sense. So, basically, he's parted the waters. He has land on there, but there's no rain. So, what? So does, the, the did, mist comes up and waters everything. Yeah. It is a little strange, It is isn't a little it? strange. Did he just stop all rain and then all of a sudden, once he's <laughs> created everything, say, Okay, clouds, get up here and do your job. Come on now. Well, there are, there are a couple approaches to reconciling these differences, right? One of them is the Mormon approach, where they say Genesis 1 is the spiritual creation of all this stuff. Yeah. Genesis 2 is the temporal creation. So he first created everything spiritually, then everything was materially created. Which in and of itself brings up the question, if God had to spiritually create us, who spiritually created God? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. God always existed, though. He doesn't need to be spiritually created. Define always. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> without a beginning. Without a beginning. A second, a second interpretation of this is that Genesis 1 is um, a God's eye view. So he's creating the cosmos, everything, and you kind of zoom into man. Genesis 2 is the man's eye view. So this so. is the creation from the man's perspective, right? Mm. Um, I'll tell you what I think. I think that you had two oral traditions and the Hebrews who put this in and collected it one didn't know which safe. one. And yeah. so they just put them both in. And the same thing happens with Noah's Ark and the Ten Commandments. you got two boarding of the Ark. All the animals get up, it takes off, and then they uh, come back, and all the animals go up, and it takes off again. you got two Ten Commandments. Now, these are clearly just two separate oral traditions that, 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 that were, were combined. tossed together just to make sure that they got everything right. they needed. Exactly. To. Um, but my point is, 
Once you interpret, like the Mormons do, that spiritual creation or um, the other interpretation, you know, however you decide to reconcile it, that's not in the text. That's your interpretation. That's exactly. your uh, decision. Your way of manipulating it to follow right. your beliefs. That's you. That's not in the text itself. You can interpret the Bible literally all the way up until Genesis 2, and that's it. The second chapter of it, you have to throw out... Uh, a literal interpretation, yeah. and you have to put your own understanding on top of the text. So I think, by itself, literal interpretations of the Bible cannot stand. Uh, and I, I really would love to, to, to talk to a fundamentalist Christian, evangelical Christian, people who literally believe in the Bible, because you can literally believe it all, all the way up until you interpret it. And actually, this stuff is not easy either. Even in the first section, you've got to interpret uh, what, what those words mean. There is always a layer of interpretation between the text and between you. Well, in all honesty, I think a lot of religious people see that interpretation as a strength, not a weakness. I mean, I can see them looking at this thinking, you know what, God wanted us to question everything, and therefore this is why he didn't just come out and say it. Well, i got a question for you. There you have Adam and Eve, and they're commanded uh, not to eat of the tree of knowledge, right? Because yeah. if, the, if you eat of the tree of knowledge, then you know the difference between good and evil. And in that day you shall surely die. So Eve goes over there and is tricked by the serpent who at that point has legs and yeah. talks. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... Tricked by a talking legged serpent. Wouldn't that be a gecko? Into, <laughs> into biting the apple. And then um, she convinces Adam to, and then they put on clothes because they're ashamed. And God comes and he asks, why are you ashamed, right? Oh, you've eaten out of the, the apple. Well, see, I mean, and, and another question is... But my big thing is, with that one, he punishes them by kicking them out of the Garden of Eden and are, are out of paradise. Yeah. But can you really punish someone for doing something if they don't know the difference between good and evil? Well, not only that, but once Eve learned of good and evil by partaking of the fruit, would she not have understood that it was evil for her to walk up to Adam and say, here, eat this? <laughs> yeah, but she's human, though. Well, oh, so as soon as, well, that's and true. And she's female, and subject she, to passions, and, passions and, and which men aren't. Don't want to be without my man. <laughs> so... Um, it's kind of like sentencing a um, mentally retarded person to uh, death for doing something that he can't understand it. Or someone who's insane. Now, interestingly um, enough... You don't really punish insane people no. who don't understand the difference between good and evil the same way you punish people who are no. fully aware. Now, interestingly enough, my dad has an explanation for this. I'd love to hear this. Oh, I'm sure you would. Now, my dad's explanation of this, and something I've actually heard within the Mormon religion itself, is that God gave contradictory commandments. And oh, the reason, I've heard this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the reason why he gave those contradictory commandments is so that you could learn to choose the lesser of two <laughs> Your evils. Your father believes in a very interesting God. Yeah, I um, mean... I've heard that too. He gives, he gives it... Uh, commandment to go forth and multiply yep. and not to eat of the fruit. Well, but you have to eat of the fruit to go forth and multiply. In order to understand the carnal nature of man, therefore... Right. Um, and so you have to do it. And, and I, the way it was explained to me was eating the fruit was a transgression. It was a diso disobeying the law, but it wasn't actually a sin. Uh, and that, you're getting into really fine semantics Yeah, we're there. talking gray area everywhere. Right. So I think it's it's ridiculous that God would put you in a situation where you'd have to... Why didn't he just tell him? Why didn't he just instruct him how to have sex? Yeah. I mean, why does he have to well, force them to commit sin for which he later punishes them? Why would he have to... I mean, why is he withholding knowledge from them? Right. And that, that actually is a nice metaphor for Christianity as a whole. I've always loved that metaphor. Don't search the mysteries. Don't learn about uh, truth or knowledge. Keep your people stupid so that they will understand only what you're telling them and they won't believe anything else. You know, I've never considered that as an analogy of that as a whole, but, you know, that is a perfect analogy because it's absolutely right. I mean, when I was falling away from my religion, there were all sorts of people telling me, you know what, that is beyond your level of comprehension. You should not be searching it out. It will be made known to you in time. I got that all the time. I was talking to um, my wife's bishops and missionaries about Adam God. 
and why Brigham Young taught this for 33 years that he was uh, president prophet of the church. And they said, oh, it's not necessary for your salvation. Just forget about it. This stuff will be made uh, clear later when we're better able to understand it. You know, forget about that whole blood atonement thing. <laughs> that whole polygamy thing and all this stuff in the 18th, uh, 1800s. Just forget about that stuff. It doesn't have to do with your salvation. What has to do with your salvation is joining the church, paying tithing, and going to the temple. That's what you need. Yep. Don't, don't look into this stuff. I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible. Anyway, so the whole overarching point is that you, every time you read a text, you interpret it, and you are forced to interpret it to reconcile two contradictory accounts in Genesis right from the get-go. So I think um, this solo scriptura or you know the Protestant where you, all you need is the scriptures or this idea that you can just believe what it says in the Bible without um, anything else I think is, is ridiculous. You have to come to grips with these contradictions in some way, shape, or form. You know, interestingly enough, I was watching that movie, or that show, Firefly. And uh, at one point, uh, the little crazy girl was tearing out picture, or pages of the Bible saying, you know, this contradicts each other. How can Moses, or not Moses, Noah fit so many animals on there? And the preacher actually ripped it out of her hands and says, you know, it's not a matter of reconciling this text. It's a matter of having faith. Right, what, what doesn't make any sense. Jefferson did the same thing. He, he sat in the White House and took a razor blade and cut out all the supernatural portions of the New Testament. And so we, it's called the Jefferson Bible, <laughs> where it's just like Jesus' teachings. Uh, very interesting that a president, you know, if they did that today, oh my God, he'd be oh, impeached. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I was just, I think that um, the literal interpretation of the Bible is out. I think it fails uh, entirely. Well, I don't think it can stand up to even can't. philosophical discussion. It can't. And, and so you kind of have to throw that out anyway. So that's no longer um, a problem for evolutionary theory, right? There's really no, no contradiction. So we, what you need to do is interpret it in light of evolution. And that's what you have to do because evolution is pretty much... Um, uh, I'd say a fact, uh, but it, it's about as well tested as a theory can, can be. get. And I'm sure it's continually tested every single day because there's so much religious scrutiny on this particular subject. Yeah, well, well let, I mean, let's talk about um, common counterarguments, which we, the most common for me was the second law of thermodynamics counterargument, which my dad gave. And uh, his point was that things become more disordered over time, and that flies in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. Evolution is a theory. The second law of thermodynamics is a law. A law trumps a theory, so evolution cannot occur. Um, and that actually sounded right to me when I was a teenager. I, I bought it. You know, and, and really, it's, it's much like this, uh, this TV uh, preacher I saw one time who got up there and said, you know what, I have conclusively proven that evolution is false. However, I'm being blackballed by the scientific community because they want to cling to this so tightly. Yeah, whereas, there's a gigantic conspiracy to keep Preacher down <laughs> in the scientific yeah. community. Whereas I'm sitting there, at the time, sitting there thinking about this, going, really? Are you telling me that if you had conclusive proof that a theory that's been around for hundreds some odd years, that you would not receive the Nobel Prize for this, that you wouldn't be raised up on a pedestal saying, look what he did that the entire scientific community has not been able to do? I'll tell you right now, if you bring down the theory of evolution, you will go down in history. Yeah, absolutely. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, there's no one in the scientific community so wedded to evolution that they would um, falsify uh, or, or keep people out of it. Well, see, the problem with falsifying something in the scientific community is sooner or later somebody's going to check your work, and yep. if they discover that falsification, you're out of a job. Right. That, that happened in Korea with uh, cloning. Um, he uh, put results up, they couldn't be replicated, and they did an uh, investigation into it. It turns out he was falsifying his data. Uh, lost his job. Um, and, and, you know, he was a really good scientist up to that, so he lost all of his scientific credibility. Very difficult for him now to publish a paper. paper. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. No one buys it. No one would even believe what he had to say if he walked up and had the explosion go off in their face. Right. So um, uh, there are controls in the scientific community. They complain they can't get into peer-reviewed um, research journals and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but if you have good research, uh, it'll go into a journal. I can guarantee it. 
Anyway, any other common, um, I mean, there are tons of, you know, one is that there wasn't enough time, the Earth is only 6,000 years old. Yeah, now that's a big one. That's one I actually was trying to elucidate my cousin on a couple of weeks back, because he was saying, well, I don't believe the, the Earth is as old as it is, because carbon dating is flawed. Yeah, um, that that's so off base that it, it doesn't even glance against the <laughs> against the topic. Um, you can see that he has no education in this, because... Carbon. He watched a video on oh, this, actually. Go. He watched a video, and that's where he got his conclusions from instead of researching this himself. Well, I can't refute a video. Yeah. On Whereas, this. yeah, he told me that I should watch this video, and I laughed and said, I can probably tell you exactly what the video said without seeing it. Uh, bring it on. I'd be happy to watch it. Yeah. We'll review it here. Yeah, um, that's not a bad idea. Uh, anyway, the uh, in carbon dating, the, the half-life of carbon is about 5,000 years, I think. And once you get to about 10 half-lives. So you've divided something in half 10 times. There's so small uh, of the original substance left that you really have a hard time going any further than that. Yeah, so, so carbon dating is good for about 50,000. So we can look back at least 50,000 years with carbon dating. Carbon dating is really good for archaeology. Um, you can you take uh, garments or, or stuff with a tree, carbon in it. Uh, a lumber from the house, something right, like that. Right, and you can date it. And... Uh, you know, they'll say that, the, the creationists will say that you can't um, rely on these dates because they'll, they'll cite an article about a mollusk, uh, a living mollusk who was decarbon dated to, you know, 50,000 years or 30,000 years old. Oh, that's right. I heard that one a long time ago. You remember that? Ago. Yeah. Uh, that, if you look at the article, it says that um, these, these mollusks actually ingest ancient carbon from the sea floor, and that gets deposited in their shells, so... Yeah, that that's kind of what we expect, right? Yeah. Um, if you ingest uh, ancient carbon and you you test that, it's going to come out ancient. That's actually <laughs> that's actually uh, it means it works. Um, and if you get crazy dates like this, you kind of have to look at a, a secondary um, well a reason for it. And, and ingesting carbon that's ancient is one of them. Well, exactly my point, though, is scientists aren't exactly looking at just one thing to determine something. Yeah, you can calibrate this. You can calibrate. You can take a carbon sample from a tree ring and calibrate it by counting the, the tree rings. You can take carbon samples from ice cores and yeah. calibrate it by counting the, the cores. Now, ice cores in and of themselves, people will argue, well, what happens if you have a freeze over twice in the same year? But it comes down to calibrating this stuff against other forms, such as tree rings, potassium, carbon dating. Yep. And yeah, when you get to the age of the Earth, it's potassium argon dating, which is a half-life, I think, in the uh, one to two billion year range. Um, and, and in order to throw this stuff out, you have to throw out a whole bunch. Of, you have to throw out basic physics. You have to say basic physics is wrong. They'll claim that, well, maybe a billion years ago, the constants were different. Well, maybe... Do you have any evidence for that? Maybe the uh, constants were different. Are you trying to tell me that a billion years ago, two plus two didn't equal four? They're, they're, they're casting about for anything that will salvage their religious beliefs. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's absurd, really. Um, I've seen, uh, you know, Kent Hovind, for example, has a whole series of videos on it. And they, they asked him one time, Kent, what would you accept as evidence for evolution? What would prove to you that the theory was true? You know what he said? He said, if a cat gave birth to a dog, then that would prove evolution to me. That and doesn't make tell, any sense. You tell this is disingenuous because, A, it'll never happen. B, if it did happen, it would be evidence against the theory, Kent. You don't understand the theory if you think that a cat giving birth to a dog provides evidence. This isn't even the same species. We're not even talking about small mutations that are propagated through yeah. genealogy. But that's what they think. And the, the way yeah. the Master guys, the Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort, when they debated the, the skeptical crew, the Rational Response Squad, they brought pictures of um, fro duck or whatever, which was like a frog and a duck tucked oh. together, and, yeah. and, and all these stupid things, which you know were photoshopped, uh, a dog onto a cat. And, um, they said, well, this is ridiculous. Well, of course it's ridiculous. That's not what evolution predicts. That's not in the theory of evolution at all. That's your stupid straw man uh, takedown argument yeah. for evolution. No, interestingly enough, reality. if they want to bring two species together, why don't we pull up the common chicken? Because every once in a while, the common chicken is born with reptilian teeth. Right. If God were um, separately creating all of these species, 
Why would he give chicken genes for uh, reptilian teeth? <laughs> Uh, but it just it so happens every once in a while that gene is which has been mutated and so it's inactive will become reactivated by a second mutation and they'll actually have teeth. But they, if you look into their genome, they have teeth, the genes for teeth. Yeah. It's just uh, suppressed or mutated out. So, I mean, so much for your frog duck theory. Why don't you take a look at the reptilian uh, chicken, chicken that you have for dinner? Absolutely. They'll, they'll look at Archaeopteryx. No, they have to say that it's a bird because it has feathers. <laughs> uh, there is no reptile that has feathers that we know of. Um, so they have to say it's a bird. But if you look on talkorigins.org and you look at the, you do a Google search on that or, or you, you look up Archaeopteryx, transitional form, uh, there are actually something like 13 reptilian features and only six bird features or avian features. Yeah, so this is more, it's more of a reptile than it is a bird. And it, it, one of the things that, that tells me that this stuff is a transitional form. You, you have these creationists who say, you know, there are no transitional forms. It has to either be an ape or a human. And you look at, like, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, um, Homo neanderthalensis, uh, the, the Lucy, uh, Africanus afarensis, I think it is. If you take these, and a good half of them will say it's human, and a good half of them will say it's ape. And that's different <laughs> for each one. Yeah, you put these creationists up, and it's, like, random. Um, so that tells me that's a definition of a transitional form. Absolutely. Yeah. If you can't tell which side of the spectrum it's on, yeah, it's transitional. It's, transitional. it's in the middle of deciding which side it's on. Absolutely. Yeah. And these guys speak of transitional forms. Uh, if if it, creationism or intelligent design guys know the mind of God so much better than these scientists, why is it that a team of scientists? Um, predicted where and in what fossil layer they would find yeah, the transitional form yeah. of the tetrapod, the tictalic. And they went out there and they dug, didn't find anything, I think, for the first year, went out there and dug again, dug again, and they found it. They found tictalic, and it's a beautiful transitional form. It, it's um, it got, you know, like the fins that are starting to become feet. Uh, yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. It, it looks like you just push up and kind of breathe out of the water. Um, gorgeous. But, you know, if the intelligent guys, uh, design guys are right, what, this is a beautiful, beautiful confirmation of evolutionary theory. This was a prediction they made before they went out. They went out, found the strata, dug in that strata, and found the transitional form. Well, obviously God put it there to put doubting in his faithful yeah. so that they could prove themselves better than the rest of us. For that that is a plausible doubt. alternative explanation. Yeah. God could just be screwing around with us. Yeah. Why does he do that? <laughs> All right, so um, I don't even know if we hit a bunch of common um, counter-arguments, but I can't even think of any more at the moment. They're so horrible. They're, they're almost not worth... Yeah, uh, a lot of the times when you hear one of these counter-arguments, the first thing you look at is, you actually believe that? Uh, hold on a second. Let me just look into this for two seconds, and I'll show you why it's wrong. And that's, that's what a lot of these counter-arguments are. However, the problem is, is, do you really want to go into that much discussion with somebody on how wrong they are when all it's going to do is butt up against their head and then they'll look around for another argument against you. Yeah, ultimately I think it's a waste of time, but if they bring it out to you, I think you're kind of obligated to uh, respond to it. Did, did we go over second law of thermodynamics? Very, very minutely. Um, we ought to discuss that a little bit in depth. So the reason this is wrong is that, uh, first of all, thermodynamics uh, with entropy, it's more of heat exchange in an isolated environment that it has to do with anything else. Um, and, and, you know, heat is the most disordered form of energy. So it kind of tells you how kind of heat flows um, in, in isolated systems. Really, uh, you're using it kind of, uh, scientists use, use the term entropy and disorder as a colloquial term to, to, to discuss this idea with lay people. But it really, the, the equation has more to do with heat exchange and, and flow of heat. Um, but when you, when you look at the Earth, the Earth itself is not an isolated system. No, it isn't. So you can have uh, things that are, are more ordered, more complex form in a, in a system where you're constantly pouring in heat. Yeah, we right. have constant energy being fed onto this planet by the sun. This isn't something where we're just hit with some heat and then we watch it go nuts. Right. So you get tiny pockets of order when you the, the balance you have massive amounts of, of disorder in the form of the heat from the sun and you can get tiny pockets of order from it and overall you have more um, entropy than not yeah. than order. 
um, you're still trending, the, the universe as a whole is still trending toward disorder, even if you take the, the common colloquial term of disorder as opposed to heat exchange. But yeah, the, the, the counter-argument of that is that the Earth is not an isolated system, that the sun is constantly pouring heat into it yeah. and energy and catalyzing reactions and I mean, driving reactions. We're talking, I mean, how many thousands of watts of heat are just hitting us at any time. This is quite a bit of energy just striking us at any moment right. within time. If you take um, chemistry and you learn a little bit about thermodynamics, and you, you learn the difference between exothermic reactions which produce heat, produce energy, and endothermic reactions which, which? Uh, require energy to, to go. No endothermic reaction would occur at all in the absence of, of the sun. Yeah. Um, you know, you just don't, you don't generate the amount of heat. You know, it would be statistically wildly improbable unless you have that heat to begin with. Anyway, that's a, you know, the, the isolated system thing, I'm not sure anything is an isolated system. Uh, possibly the universe, but you know, you have that whole big bang thing which may have been a quantum fluctuation outside the universe, you know, in the larger cosmos. Um, yeah. so we don't know. Yeah, we really knows? don't. Maybe we're just a black hole within a black hole. Yeah, <laughs> it's possible. Uh, okay, so that's second law of thermodynamics, uh, fairly easy to dispense with, but it keeps cropping up. Well, the reason why it keeps pro cropping up, in my opinion, is because it sounds very scientific when somebody brings it forward, right. and most people haven't put enough research into this or thought into it to be able to dispel it on site. Yeah, it seems commonsensical, I guess, that things become more disordered. If you, if you leave something to its own devices, it'll become, you know, it'll fall, it'll, it'll become more disordered. So common sense says that things wouldn't, um, but uh, you know the history of science is uh, decades and centuries of refuting common sense. <laughs> if we were stuck with common sense, we'd still be stuck with Aristotelian physics, and we wouldn't have general relativity, we wouldn't have quantum physics, certainly. Yeah. It flies in the face of common sense. And Newtonian physics, even. Well, you know, you know, we wouldn't even that. have this computer in front of us, which right. deals with a lot of these theories as well. Yeah, I love it when people are arguing against evolution or... or or physics, you know, or against on, science in general on, on a, a computer. computer. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Scientists are horrible. They don't know what they're talking about. Oh, by the way, guess what science gave me that I'm yeah. clicking away on my fingers with? Yeah, horrible, horrible. All right, uh, that ends uh, part one of the podcast. Please stay tuned next week uh, where we have part two, which is uh, evidences for evolution. <laughs>